0: continue this morning in our study of the gospel according to John. I've been very thankful to be hearing from several of you that uh, God's word has been speaking to you during this, uh, this series and pray that it will continue this week as we look at this, next week as Camper uh, reminds us of the identity of, of Christ. Um, but there is something beautiful in the simplicity and yet um, even the perplexity uh, that this gospel brings to us. Uh, While you're turning, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we do come this day to offer our worship to you that comes in the form of praise that you are worthy to receive. And worship now as we give to you our ears, our minds, and our hearts. Uh, Lord, even more than us giving, we pray that by your spirit you would take them and that you would speak to us through these words you've recorded through your servant John. And that we might see you see more clearly that we, through Christ, that we would see Jesus through them and through Jesus see ourselves as well. Use this word to shape us, not only in our thoughts, but our hearts and therefore our lives. That we may worship you not only here, but by the fruit of what you do through your word. We would worship you with our lives as well. Bless us that we may bring you joy and be a blessing to those around us. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. John chapter 8, beginning our reading in verse 31. Hear the word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father they answered him Abraham is our father Jesus said to them if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did but now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God this is not what Abraham did you are doing the works your father did They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God? The word of our Lord. May we be blessed to hear them. Late in the summer of 1874, what was then to be considered to be the largest family reunion in American history was held. Between 400 and 500 relatives uh, made their way to the small resort town of uh, uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, to mingle and to commemorate their common ancestor. Everyone present had come from the line of one particular couple, Reverend Jonathan and Sarah Pierpont Edwards. According to all reports, all had a good time. Now, 25 years later, a curious educator by the name of A. E. Winship, traced the descendants and then recorded the data that had come from that single union. And as he recorded the representatives of that family, here is what he found in that line from Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. One United States Vice President, three United States Senators, three Governors, three mayors of significant American cities, 80 other public office holders, 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 62 physicians, 75 army or navy officers, and over 100 ministers, missionaries, and theological professors all from the line of that single couple. A historian from the New York Historical and Genealogical Society noted this, no other couple has ever produced so many contributors to society in American history than Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And Winship, who was the one who was curious and and made this uh, record, he summarized that there is scarcely any industry that has not been influenced by one of the Edwards family members. And then he concluded that the moral to be taken from this family lesson is that a godly ancestry is of great advantage. Now many of us understand that. Many of you are here today because of the influence of faithful parents and faithful grandparents. I appreciate the heritage that my children have that didn't come from my line but from Carolyn's line, Carolyn's family history is, to me, almost incredible. Uh, Going back to the time that the Huguenots came to South Carolina, one of Carolyn's uh, great-great-grandfathers was the minister that came on the ship with them. And his wife prayed at that time that there would be always, from that time forward, somebody engaged in full-time mission or ministry. And from that time forward, there has been, I believe we are the 13th generation in a row in that direct line that is engaged in full-time ministry. And we are familiar with other strains as well, because I had a seminary classmate that came from someone else uh, from that line and met a family a couple of years ago uh, while I was serving in Cherokee that minister in Florida. uh, And their family has an incredible history as well that breaks off with Carolyn's great-great-grandparents. Just an absolutely incredible history and so I I appreciate the fact that there is great benefit in that family history and I guess for the moral for us is if you are one who comes from that line to give thanks if you are not one you can do like me and marry into it Um, (laughs) but the one thing that we can all decide is whether we are part of a line or not we can begin the line with our lives and our families even now. But one of the things that's interesting is when pastors use this story, which is a fairly uh, common story, uh, to try to encourage godly living and godly parenting and tell you about the results, is that often left out is one, what I would consider a very important and significant detail that comes from within the Edwards family line. And that detail goes like this. One of the things that's left out is that Edwards' daughter, Esther, in 1756 gave birth to a, a son. And she named Aaron after Moses' brother, keeping the family tradition of naming the children after uh, biblical heroes. And after Aaron had grown up for a few years, Esther described her son in this way. Not uncommon of of boys and maybe even some girls, but here's what she had to say. He is sly and mischievous, handsome but not well-tempered. And he requires a good governor to bring him back to terms. In other words, she was describing a gift, uh, a kid who was gifted in many ways, somewhat precocious and wanted to do things his own way and only by, well, sometimes sheer force was he compelled to do things the right way. And this was telling of the young man as he grew up, particularly as we were able to see things, history in reverse, Uh, Because this young man did grow to be quite successful, Um, he is the vice president that was noted in the lineage of Edward's family history. But Aaron was the notorious Aaron Burr, who was most famed for gunning down his political rival, Alexander Hamilton. And perhaps less known, but equally scandalous in his day, was the fact that he was accused of, arrested, and tried for treason to the United States that after he had fled from the Hamilton situation, he thought that life might be nice if he was the um, emperor of Mexico and began working with the Spanish government to take over the territories of Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and and that whole area, and he was setting himself up for a life of ease, riches, and and as a dictator. Hardly the line that you would expect to come from Jonathan Edwards that one generation removed, his grandson, would demonstrate the brilliance, but none of the character. And I suspect that the moral that we need to take from this detail is this, is that while a godly heritage is of some benefit, it is no guarantee of spiritual health in ourselves. And this is pertinent when we consider the people that Jesus is speaking with in our passage, because their spiritual heritage was tremendous. He's speaking with Jews who repeat in this passage that they are descendants from Abraham, which I suspect trumps even Jonathan Edwards. And their identity was rooted in Abraham and all of the promises that were made to Abraham, which is good because that's the whole nature of covenant. But even with the blessing of the great heritage they had, we see evident throughout the gospel and even in their interaction here, that the blessing they had had not provided the benefit because they had some seriously flawed notions about themselves and about God and about how they would relate to God. And then Jesus is incredibly direct and blunt with these folks as he's speaking with them in a way that's almost shocking, and particularly shocking when we consider the context of what we read last week and in the first verse here, because if you look back and see in verse 30 that after Jesus had declared himself to be the light of the world, really the, the culmination of the whole week, and, and even after the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles was over, and, and Jesus continued to teach in a dialogue and to make declarations of himself multiple times that he himself is the living God and and God's provision, the Messiah. We're told in verse 30, many people believed in him because of these words. And then John picks up in our text this morning in in verse 31, and whether this is a continuation of that conversation or whether John just masterfully weaves in this portion to that uh, uh, section, with the common theme, we do read this in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and then he launches into what at first seems to be relatively benign, maybe even encouraging kind of a statement, and then he gets downright offensive uh, and, and blunt and bold throughout this passage in a way that is perplexing for many people. Why would he speak to believers in this way? One sense he's speaking to them this way, as we see written here, is because he's essentially saying to those who had believed, you believe? Great. Now go home and think about what that means. There's another sense that he's addressing them because the phrase that is in verse 31 is slightly different than verse 30. Verse 30 said many people believed in him and It seems to be consistent with what he was calling them to do. But if you notice in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him. The tense there tells us there is something that is different. It may be that they were among those who had believed, and he was talking about it in terms of they already believed, but there seems to be something that is lacking. And so maybe they had given intellectual uh, assent to what Jesus had said. They were curious and following until either something better came along or until he made them angry, in which case they would go someplace else. More likely, I think what we're seeing here is what Jesus taught elsewhere is like the parable of the seed and the soils, where when the gospel went out and it sometimes fell upon hard soil and was never received at all, we see that evident in the Pharisees that continually are, are debating Jesus and were actively plotting to kill him. But we see also from Jesus' instruction that sometimes a seed appears to take root, and so people were saying essentially about Jesus' claims, that that makes sense, tell me more. But when life happens, either things get too hot or things get too prickly or there's something that is more entertaining, that which seemed to be blossoming proves to have never been a genuine faith that the Bible describes. And it withers, and there is no fruit, no evidence in their lives. I suspect that the people that Jesus is speaking to is somewhat of a mix. We, we know there are people there that never really believed and that were always hostile to him. There were others that were curious. There were others that probably were genuine believers, but they were, they were all together. And Jesus is addressing them all at the same time. And the essence of what he's telling us in this particular passage and speaking to them is this, is that there are basically two different kinds of relationships in one relationship, you belong to God through the faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in the other relationship, you belong to the devil, Satan, by name, either by overt evil or, as Jesus seems to be describing to us here, belong to the devil by mere indifference and self-deception. But the relationships themselves are different and different. They carry different ultimate destinies because one path leads to freedom and the other path leads to slavery. Jesus is very sharp because he is challenging the people there and through them he is challenging every one of us because of the fact that he's using the word believe and there's a whole range of what that means from believer to, and there's people that are hostile and and he's addressing them. He's addressing those of us who claim to have a faith in Jesus Christ so that we have an opportunity to evaluate our own heart. And in, through this passage, he gives us some principles that we're able to use somewhat as a measure in our own life to check our, gauge our own spiritual vitality. It's a measure that shouldn't be applied to other people, but it's one that we apply to our own hearts, our own lives, to give ourselves a, a, a spiritual, physical checkup to find out whether we're doing well or whether we're even alive at all. The first we see in verse 31, there's a principle that he gives us here, and it's this, is that those who abide in his word will experience freedom. In fact, going very specifically, reading the passage itself, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so he's making a declaration about those who abide in his word. He's saying whether somebody abides in his word or not is the indication of whether they are truly a disciple of his. And one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's making a distinction between those who, will say, believe and those who are his disciples and and recognizing that he's eliminating any idea of a two-tiered Christianity that there are different categories. There's people who kind of accept these things and, and, and then there are people who are his disciples. He's saying if you believe, if you are his followers, disciples is what he is after and what he is cultivating and what he is making. And he's saying that those who are his disciples or the evidence of that is the fact that they abide in his word and then those who abide in his word he gives two glorious promises. They'll have truth and that truth will give you freedom. So it seems the key that we have to ask ourselves is this, what does he mean by abide? Some of your translations use a different word. If it's the NIV, it says, if you hold to my teachings, and that's a a good way of explaining it. If you have the King James or the the RSV or uh, NASB, it says, if you continue in my word, that's also helpful. Just as a side note, I, I know I've said this before, but it's important that we understand this. Different words, shouldn't make things more difficult to understand. They're not in competition with one another if they are good translations. Each of them grasps a piece of the meaning of the original Greek word, and Greek being especially uh, specific. that that doesn't necessarily have an equivalent in the English language, and so the translators are grabbing the, the sense of what it means. And so really, when you see these different words and different translations to put them together you're getting more pieces to the puzzle to get a better picture if you take what each of these mean and then kind of figure out where they intersect where they overlap and where the point of all intersection you have a a great picture of it the the, the term is dynamic equivalence when when you see that and that's what's happening here Uh, the question though is where do they intersect and what do they what do they mean and i got some help from the the great puritan matthew henry and, and his commentary on the gospel of john about what does it mean to abide, especially when you consider to continue in. Here's what Matthew Henry says. To abide is to dwell in Christ's word, as a man does a home, which is his center, and rest, and refuge. And so the imagery that Matthew Henry is giving, which is consistent with what the word abide means, abide and abode, are are related, one is the physical structure, the other is what you do in that physical structure. The, he's using the imagery, saying that we should relate to God's word in the same way that we relate to our homes. And I, I find it to be a very helpful kind of imagery because you start thinking about your home. What, what is the difference about our home as opposed to any other structure or place that we go? Well, certainly it's a place that we're very familiar with, and we're familiar with it because we spend a significant amount of time there. And over a long period of time, you get to know uh, not just the, the big picture things, but you know every detail, every nook, every cranny, every creek, everything that is is, is in your home because you're spending time there. The home is a place we go after a long day or after a difficult time. It's a place where we find rest or where we are able to um, find the the ability to be restored, whether it's in our projects. uh, We we discipline ourselves to do what's necessary to maintain and to to know what's going on so that we have a place to go, to be refreshed, to be renewed, to, to rest. And all of those kinds of concepts are what Matthew Henry is telling us that Jesus has in mind here when he uses the word abide. That It's not just a matter of reading and disciplining yourself to do that. You do that at work. But a home is a place that is your center, so when things are out of kilter, you're, you're home. A home is not necessarily where you are every day. We take vacations, we travel, but it's the place you come back to, and you recognize that's where you belong. And Jesus is saying that when we relate to his word in that way, that it is our center, it is our base, it's where we come, where we find comfort, it's our knowledge, we're familiar with it, and that's the evidence that we are his followers, that we not just believe what he said, but we believe that what he says has power and benefit and shapes and restores us. Jesus is saying as a declaration, look, if you abide in my word, if you make your home in my word, he makes the declaration, that's the evidence that you are my disciple and you will have the truth and that truth will set you free. Now, what truth? Well, God's truth. As we live in an economy where all people have all sorts of different ideas of truth, we have to figure out where it is that we find our source of truth. It's not to say that all ideas of truth are equal. That's a whole philosophical discussion I don't want to get into today. But just assuming we have to decide, what is the authority? What do we consider to be truth? And here's throwing into the economy for your consideration is is God, the one who is both the architect of the earth and the engineer of life, and says, here's how life is supposed to work. Here's what you need to know about yourself. Here's what you need to know about me. And here's my plan. And here's what's going on. That's his truth. And if we spend our time in his word, we are given that truth because the truth is revealed in his word. And then an incredible promise that he makes is, that truth will set us free. Now we come to the second thing, which is the bulk of what we have in in this text. In the second principle, the first is that those who abide in his word will experience freedom. But the second thing we see is this. Freedom is evident through obedience to God. At first, that may seem somewhat oxymoronic because we don't usually think of freedom found in having to obey. We think freedom is not having to obey, doing what we want. But I think, as Jesus makes clear here, is that really what we tend to think of as freedom? We actually are enslaved, and and that's his point. In one sense, as we we look at this, what Jesus says here in in, in verses thirty-one and thirty-two, you wonder what, why anybody would take that the wrong way. But he seems to have struck a nerve they react to this at worst benign and at best encouraging statement you know, if you abide in my word then you'll have truth and that truth will set you free and their response that we see in verse 33 we're offspring of abraham and we've never been enslaved uh, to anyone now i i don't know about you but i want to scratch my head okay so your whole identity your whole heritage is the fact that you're jewish and you're from israel Trace back to Abraham and you're saying your identity, y'all have never been enslaved at all. Have you ever heard of Egypt? Um, you know, that whole exodus thing, um, that ring a bell? Or how about exiled under the authority of the rule and the enslaved to the, the Babylonians? Um, Now, it it may be what they are doing is recognizing their history that their ancestors had actually been property, chattel, uh, for some other people. And that during their lifetime, they had never really been owned by anybody else. Although, the fact of the matter is, as Jesus points out elsewhere, you know, the Romans own you right now. You don't get to live the way that you want to live. You don't get to shape things. You have to do what they say and conform to their ways. And then you pay them for the privilege through your taxes. And so, even now, they were under Roman oppression but whatever it was, they, they didn't like this idea that they were not free. They, they thought they were free. But then what Jesus does here is, is really something that is interesting, but it's also important for us to hear. Because, again, Jesus is not just speaking to the people there. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to everybody through these people. And he offers them an entirely new category of slavery that they had not thought and most of us don't tend to think of in those terms. And he speaks to them of slavery to sin. We see that evident in, in verse 34. I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, they had to take that as seriously as we do, because the question then is, okay, everybody who commits sin is a slave to sin. Okay, who commits sin? Well, everyone. From a personal standpoint, we have to ask not only who commits sin, but then when we come to that, we ask ourselves, and what is the sin that I commit? And we don't tend to think of our sin as something that we are enslaved to. In some cases, we do. But many times we learn to cope with it. But one of the things that he says is that that Jesus is helping us to understand here is that our sin owns us. If for no other reason, the wage of sin is death, and we can never pay that wage back. So it's always held over our head and always makes demands on us. It's like blackmail. You will never escape it by your own ability. And he says that it owns you and it also makes you do things that you claim to be free but it's somewhat like an addiction. Ultimately you end up giving in to whatever it demands. It owns you. Sin becomes a master. And he's telling them not just everybody, he's not talking about the category of being sinners but everybody who commits sin John tells us in the epistle, if you claim to be without sin, you're, dece- you're kidding yourself. You're making God out to be a liar. And then he says something that seems particularly odd here, but it's on the same theme. In verse 35 he says, and a slave does not remain in the house forever. And I read that for the first time i I think, what in the world is he talking about here? He's continuing to talk about being a slave to sin. And particularly what he is saying to us is this, or to those of us who don't consider our sin to be that bad. That what my sin is, or whatever it is your sin is, it's not hurting other people. It's not really doing me any harm. Yeah, it would be better if it wasn't true, but I can live with it. In fact, some sins might be the way that you find rest or you're just, we're just comfortable with that and he's saying that the slave will not remain in the house forever. To understand what he is saying there it may be beneficial for us to turn our minds and our imagination back to the antebellum south. During a time in history that many of us would prefer to forget and pretend that didn't happen, a time of slavery. The vast majority of slaves were field hands, but a select few, we'll call them lucky ones, were house servants. And they were lucky only in this sense, is that their working conditions were much better. They had a roof. They had a bed, usually. They had access to the same foods that the owners had. And while they were still slaves, their life, from a quality standpoint, was better than the ones in the field hands, but they were still not free. Now imagine for a moment that as abolition was coming, one of those house servants began to calculate the costs of freedom and realizing that Life is hard, and they were never going to get the same resources as were available to them in this house in which they were a servant. And then concluded that while they're not free, it was easier to continue to live in slavery. We do that same thing with our sin, and what Jesus is saying to us about that is we have this idea that it's easier more comfortable to just live as slaves to our sin, he says, you won't stay in the house forever. He's a reminder to us that the master is the one who dictates everything and that as a slave, we are always subject to the whim of our master. And just as that slave in the antebellum south could just be kicked out to the fields because the master just decided... Jesus is reminding us that sin is our master, sin is evil, sin is wicked, and sin on its whim will inevitably kick the comfort out from us, kick us out of the comfort. It will do us harm, and we will do harm to others through our sin. We can't rest. And the difference is between slavery, even if it has comfort, and freedom, which is better by far. And then Jesus contrasts that. You may be comfortable, but you're not free. But the Son is free, speaking of himself. And if the Son sets you free, which comes only as we trust in him, believe in him, follow him, abide in his word, become his disciples, if he sets you free, you are free. What an incredible promise. They didn't get it. We need to. Because they didn't get it, Jesus goes on and he becomes even more blunt and actually he becomes even brutal because we see their response. They had already said we're descendants of Abraham and, and when Jesus was saying to them, you know, I know that you claim Abraham and, you know, biologically you are, but you're not Abraham's descendants. If you were Abraham's descendants, then you would be on God's side. You'd be doing what God wants. And here's a question for you. If you're doing what God wants, why are you trying to kill me? I mean, he says that twice here not because he needs the answer, but they need to ask themselves the question. And that itself is something that we need to see here. Because in this whole crew, not everybody was involved in the plot to kill Jesus. But it does suggest to us that it was such a widely known plot that even some who would never engage in that kind of behavior themselves, they were not actively doing anything to put a stop to it either. Therefore, they were culpable. The image that comes to my mind is from the, the movie of the, um, um, Why want to go blank, um, Passion. Passion of Christ, thank you, that's why we have Camper here, to make make, <laughs> make up for all of my shortcomings. Anyway, um, but, uh, um, and, and the scene where Jesus is getting nailed to the cross, Mel Gibson, both from a symbolic standpoint and from his own personal standpoint, he, who is not in the movie, he's the one, it's his hand that is using, is hammering the, the nail into Christ's uh, because he wanted to remind himself and to say uh, to others, I nailed Jesus to the cross. And any of us who commit sin, we are part of that conspiracy. Even if we would never do something that is so heinous as participate in the plot, it's, it still is our guilt. And so he's speaking to people who were guilty either by activi- active participation or just passivity and their own sin. And he says, if you belong to God, you would do the things of God. If you belong to Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. But you belong, and this is where it's incredibly blunt, but you don't belong to Abraham. You belong to your father, who is Satan. Which is itself a symposium on how not to win friends and influence enemies. Um, and yet he has a point in this, and he's trying to shake them to look at themselves and understand the reality of the two different relationships. One of the things that we need to see very clearly here is that being a child of God is not the default position of our condition, no matter how many times it is said in a Hallmark card. Being a child of God is a privilege that comes by God's gift of faith, believing, trusting, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The default position is that we are children of Satan, and we do what he does. And it's important for us to understand because it, it helps us understand our, our, our condition. But to be a child of God comes by believing, trusting in Christ himself Bible commentator Dale Bruner writes this Jesus here is inviting self satisfied believers to the altar of dissatisfaction where they can be converted from their righteousness to confession of their of their ties to sin and so finally into a blessed liberation See, most of us don't consider our righteousness to be in bondage. And somehow we have conditions improved when we say move from pointing all the good things that we do to saying, yeah, I am a sinner, and here are all of my ties to sin, confession. But what Jesus is saying is that we only understand when we come to that conversion to confession from our righteousness how much we need God's provision in the person of Christ. And then by trusting in him, we are now in the son, and the son who is free sets you free. It's counterintuitive, but it is the way of the kingdom of God, and it is the way to pass from bondage into freedom. And Jesus is declaring this to them and to us through that, that we might also experience that conversion and freedom. And that becomes evident, that freedom is evident in what he says, doing the works of your father, which our father, or in their case, the works of Abraham. Now we need to ask ourselves, what are the works of Abraham that Jesus is elevating here? So we need to consider who Abraham was. And Abraham was a great and powerful man that God had called It's declared that he would be the father of many nations. In that sense, he's not like any of us. But Abraham was also a very weak and flawed and broken man, as is evident in his life, even after God had called him. But what the scripture focuses on that is most significant about Abraham is not his greatness, but this... When God called him, we are told, Abraham believed God, and he obeyed. And therefore, it was credited to him as being righteousness. And Jesus is coming back and calling these covenant people back to the covenant, to the most essential aspect of it, which is faith and repentance and trusting in God's provision, who was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not his accomplishments, but his honesty about himself. Awareness of his need of Christ. And then doing what God had called him to do. That brought God pleasure. And that God declared his favor upon him. And Jesus is calling that, it's not about the morals. They are the byproduct, but fundamentally We do the works of Abraham. And if we choose not to, just because we don't care, or we choose to do something that is evil, we are not part of that. We are following in the line, Jesus is saying, that who our Father's identity, our Father's identity is revealed by our obedience. Scripture has a principle that's vitally important that we understand this because it's really what Jesus is getting to is that real freedom is not found in doing the things that we want, but in the power to do what is right. That's the lyrics from a a song Scott Rowley wrote a number of years ago, and I think Michael Card may have recorded it. But it is a profound truth, and it's what Jesus is kind of getting at here. Because if, if freedom is found in only doing what we want to do, but we who are broken who are sinners, then what we do is sin which plunges us further into slavery, no matter how we might feel about it, no matter how comfortable we may be in it. But the awareness of that slavery drives us to Jesus Christ, who himself being free has set us free and enables us to obey God in a way that we couldn't because prior to that, even in obedience, prior to obedience without belief is trying to buy God's favor. Obedience that is born of faith is a celebration of grace. And it's most evident in the last thing that I want to highlight here, very simply but profound And the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Those who belong to God, which is part of their obedience, love Jesus. Jesus says that in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. And I, am, and I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. What Jesus is saying in that is a very simple reality, is that to reject Jesus, therefore, is to reject God. Because Jesus didn't come just because he thought it would be a good idea. God sent him. So to reject him is to reject God's provision. And the wisdom behind the motivation of God sending that provision. But to love Jesus is to understand God's love and the reason that he sent Jesus. A man who I have a great deal of respect for, I'm happy to call him a friend a number of years ago, not like way back in ancient time, but a few years ago, uh, said to me, I know we're supposed to love God, but I don't think I love God. Not, not like I love my wife and my daughter and my son. And I didn't want to disrespect him by disagreeing with him. The fact is, if you knew the guy, you would recognize there is a clear godliness in his life, which is evident through his life and the obedience and commitment uh, to God. But I think what he was saying is something that some of us perhaps haven't thought about, but probably most of us have experienced it sometime. We hear the word in terms of love for Christ, and, and then think about the people that are closest to us and the affection that we can have for people that are tangibly in our life, and then God, who is a spirit, may be present, but we can't see him, we can't touch him, even if we can feel him, and so it's hard to understand what it it means to to love God, and in this case, to, to love Jesus, somebody who is not physically present. We can appreciate him, we can value him, we can, you know, but I think we need to understand how Jesus himself defines love for him. And the reason I wasn't overly concerned for my friend is because Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now We get that backwards sometimes. We think that if we keep his commandments, he'll love us. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to those who have already been set free, whom he has already loved, and now trying to think about just how overwhelming, what is it, how do we say thank you? for freedom. And Jesus says, if you love me, just keep my commands. And when we do that and we look and we realize that God has given us his commands because this is the way life's supposed to work, we realize even his commands are a gift of grace to us. But that was evident in my friend's life and for us wanting to know how we say uh, 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 we, we love Jesus, it's by abiding in his word and, and walking in his word. That may or may not be filled with emotion but nevertheless is very real. But the emotional part comes in another aspect when Jesus is speaking about love for him. And he is speaking to those who are kind of curious about that, and he tells the parable of a certain money lender and, and two debtors. And he says one of them owed a tremendous amount, and the other owed significant, but not nearly as tremendous amount. And both of their debts were forgiven. And then he asked the one that he was teaching, so who loves more, the one whose debt was greater or the one whose debt was less? The guy responded, I suppose the one whose debt was greater. And Jesus said, You have spoken wisely. And see, it's a reminder in terms of our spiritual condition, is that when God reveals sin in our lives and how great our debt and overwhelming and how much that we are enslaved to debt. What Jesus is doing here, which seems so harsh, is a demonstration of his love. He's revealing a condition that will drive us to him and to the cross. And when we realize how great a debt we have, Jesus says, What happens is we love him more. There is an affection and an affinity. In and, and, and fact, that we are, we're told John picks it up in, in his own epistle, and he says, "Look, we love because He first loved us, and when we know how great a debt, that's where the affection comes. And in an oxymoronic way, and it's counterintuitive, we love Jesus not because He pats us on the back and say, "Aren't you nice and cute?" But we realize that He has exposed our debts. And then says, not to make you feel bad, to make you aware and to remind you, I paid it. We love when we are more aware of how great our debt is. And in that, we are able to fulfill the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. We are then motivated to obey what he has commanded us. And want to know what commanded us, then we spend time and we begin to abide in his word. In his word, we are told how we are to live, and we are set free. What an incredible, incredible gift that God has given us, not only in the person of Christ, but through this message of Christ. And and the sum of it is, is very simply this. Jesus essentially is saying here, at least a simple response to it is this, is that if you are to say to Jesus... My Lord and my God. You who hear Jesus say this to you, my disciple, my friend. Father, bless us with the understanding of these hard words and the hard truths within our own hearts. That we might be set free not only from that which is making us miserable in our bondage, but even that that is making us comfortable in our bondage. And that we who have been set free. As you have said, it is for freedom that we would be set free. May we use our freedom to rejoice in you, to bless others, to bring you pleasure, and to celebrate all of your grace and gifts. Bless us, Lord, to be a blessing to you and to the world. We pray in Jesus, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our song of dismissal.